Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, a song of ice and fire, episode 108, Davos 1 in a Storm of Swords. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. Here we are. It's been a minute. You know, this is kind of technically still the Blackwater. <laughs> yeah, the Blackwater stretches on and on. It is a long body of water. We are in our 973 of the Blackwater. Davos is in our million and five of the Blackwater. Davos is having a long life right now. <laughs> Davos is having a lot, just in general. He's like, when will this end? <sighs> Aren't we all asking when this will end, Davos? That's Aren't true. Aren't we all? And I mean, this is a short chapter, so some things are going to end much faster than you'd expect. Yes. Today. A short, happy ending for all of us. Wait. <sighs> hmm. hmm. Phrasing? Are we doing hmm. phrasing anymore? Uh, well, <laughs> I like how the joke has evolved into that, right? right? From phrasing to, are we still doing phrasing? It's one of my favorite jokes in TV series. <laughs> so, uh, evolution. Uh, are we still doing <sighs> No, but really, no. Uh, we. Uh, this is probably what? A very quick jaunt before we get toward that hand job. So, let's yep. stick it out. Let's go for a quick romp. Our lightning round is not quick today. Actually, of, of all the things in this chapter, this is not quick. We have a, a a decent chunk of a lightning round because we have to end a clash of kings. So, of course, we've highlighted because when Davos goes in a clash of kings, it, it's one of those moments, right? It's like the Arya moment at the Red Wedding. We just don't know. You think he's dead till he pops back yeah. up here. Yeah, he did really seem dead in that moment. I mean, to be honest, it just didn't look great. For Davos is what I'm trying to. Things didn't look so it's, hot. Well, they did look hot. I mean, they looked very yeah. hot, but it still didn't look great. As, as it's still not great for him here, right? I mean, all his sons are dead, but we'll we'll obviously talk about that in a <laughs> bit. That's bad. not awesome. Things are bad. Not <sighs> Gucci. Well, we cut out some of the chapters that don't really have much to do with Davos here. We kept it to the Blackwater, and at the end of Clash of Kings. We had Tyrion 13. Tyrion has lit the black water of flame, and by chapter's end, he must lead in the field. Sansa 6. Cersei graciously informs Sansa that if things go south, no one is getting out of this bitch alive. <laughs> uh, Tyrion 14. Tyrion is lucky to lose only his nose at the black water, thanks to Podrick Payne. Sansa 7 slash 8. The black water makes things a little... Hot in Sansa's bed. Chloe wrote this. This is inappropriate. <laughs> well, Eliana, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Well, okay. Well, um. So later on, of course, Sansa has to watch a mummer's farce in the throne room before getting a real gift, which is a later chance at escape. Really shitty gifts. I'm gonna be honest with you. They say don't look a gift horse in the mouth, but. I don't know. What about a gift dog? <sighs> Ow. Don't look those in the mouth either. Don't want them in the mouth, Eliana? Tyrion 15. Tyrion awakens in bed, ready to reveal beneath his bindings the monster war has created. And that brings us to A Storm of Swords and the prologue. Chet and other men of the Night's Watch plan to desert 
But the others interrupt their plans. Jamie won. Jamie enjoys the fresh air of freedom in the charge of his cousin Cleos Frey and Brienne of Tarth, and he's interrupted by a Tully galley looking to retrieve the prisoner. Catelyn won. Cat hopes to make amends between Hoster and Liza, but the clock is ticking. Arya won. Arya, Gendry, and Hotpie are lost on the trident, and by night, Arya dreams she's a wolf attacking the bloody mummers. Tyrion won. Tyrion hopes to be rewarded for his efforts in the battle, but he is instead belittled by his father. He's such a dick. I read that chapter before this, sidebar, and Tywin sucks. Yeah, it's it's you're just like, whoa, where is this all coming from? Tyrion did a great job. Yeah, but his mom probably fucked someone else, Eliana, so now I have to take it out on him. Um, <clears throat> And also, like, he did such a good job that we have this chapter, Davos 1. Yes, where Davos has finally lost all his ships, his sons, and maybe his king? Dun dun dun, no one knows. No one knows. He doesn't, that's for sure. That's true, he doesn't know. Doesn't know anything, because he's feeling like he could crawl into the cave and let death take him. Or he could wait for the sail on the distance that has suddenly appeared to grow larger and closer. He's dehydrated, hungry, just dry, and he knows that he's very, very close. He's been very tempted to start drinking seawater, and he's like, hmm. But I know, like, that way, that that's how you start dying. And he's saved by a rainstorm, which leaves water in cracks and crevices once more. But three or so days pass, and then he's back to tasting mud and rocks. Yes, he thinks, if not thirst or fever, starvation would kill him. And I am brought back to what our friend Pete sent us last week in the email when he said mm. that a man would break by then. And that siege lasted how long at Storm's End? Interesting. Interesting thoughts there. It is. It is. And especially here, right? Davos is almost at his end, and he's really brought low in this chapter. He's been been drowned and then brought back to life. You know, it's something that we see in the Iron Islands. It's very much, in a way, a baptism and rebirth for Davos. He's been smashing crabs on rocks to eat their guts and meat, fighting as they try to nip at his fingers, but once the tide rushes back down, Davos must scramble and cling to a rock to avoid being swept back down with it. Yeah, and he's left clinging on his lonely isle. The lonely island? Oh my god. He keeps trying to stone some seagulls to eat, but they're too quick for him and he's too weak, and it's interesting the language here with the crabs on the rocks and the, the eating of the guts and meat and just the, the the survival and the drowning, it actually gives me a lot of Lady Stoneheart mm-hmm. vibes. Yeah, and I think that makes sense here. There's a lot in this chapter that I think really portends Lady Stoneheart. We'll come back to that in a bit. I mean, they are in the same book. That's true, that's true. And I mean, besides that, you know, this chapter also has a lot of notes of a lot of other chapters that happen in this story and shares a lot of those same elements and themes, right? Especially in terms of these... Uh, <laughs> in terms of the the isolation that they have and having to deal with things in their past. One of the most explicit, I think, is the Forsaken, assuming, um, we're just assuming people know what's happened in that chapter. It's, we've been waiting for years, all right? I understand if you have taken a sip of seawater yourselves and have, uh, know what happened in the Forsaken, I was there when it happened, so, um. <laughs> sure puts the LSD in seawater, <laughs> yes. you know what I mean? Yeah, it does. And I mean, both 
Davos and Aaron wrestle with that idea. There's that idea of belief, right? What did they believe in? And then this kind of question of the righteous being punished and, you know, do they deserve what is coming to them or what they're enduring at this moment? Do they not deserve that? And then, of course, um, questions about godhood and punishment. Here we're seeing Davos have his own little, like, internal religious reckoning as, uh, of course, Aaron kind of does too as Euron's, like, bow to me, bow to me, and Aaron's like, well, he doesn't actually say bow to me. He says, you know, submit, like, kneel to me, like, or something. It's been a while. And Aaron's like, what the fuck? <laughs> no. <laughs> and the other chapter that it actually really reminds me of is Danny's final chapter in this pretty much entire series that we have thus far, because we have been, again, waiting for forever in our drinking seawater. Um, so that's, I think, Danny 10, A Dance with Dragons. And the way that Davos is here on this little little rock. Kind of reminds me of the way that Danny describes her time alone with Drogon in uh, at her quote unquote Dragonstone in that grassy sea. When she's speaking to the ghosts of her past and she's wrestling like with what do I do now? How do I move forward? She's starving. She's scrambling for food, right? Same way as Davos mm-hmm. is here as he's reckoning with the losses of his sons and speaking to his gods. Like Danny was reckoning with the losses of Jorah and Viserys. So, know who you are, Mufasa. Yeah. <laughs> the stars. It, it is very you. much like that. Or Simba. It is <laughs> Simba. Sorry, Mufasa was the one in Mufasa the sky. Mufasa is the dead one. I'm sorry. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Uh, uh, that's actually a really interesting connection, and I think we'll get to that, especially with the calling upon the gods. Uh, there's a lot of other connections. Catalan, Sansa, tons to come. Mm-hmm. So where Davos has landed on his lonely island, yes, Eliana, his lonely <gasps> island, uh, there are other islands that he can see from his refuge, and they're taller than his. They're a good 40 feet above water, with clouds of birds swirling above, which to me, I read that line and said, ah, that's where your other men have died. Oh, right. awesome. It's a storm of swords, Amazing. not a feast for crows, so a storm of gulls. A storm of feast seagulls. Mine, mine, mine. <laughs> Davos knows that he cannot swim the treacherous waters to try to get to another island, which looks like maybe there's more food over there. Interesting. So was he considering eating the people over there? No, he wanted to eat the seagulls. He was like, maybe I can get closer and eat some of their gull eggs or something oh, like that. Oh, but honey, which... but what awaits you on the treacherous waters in the island is cannibalism. Interesting. Where have we heard that before? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> Not this podcast. <laughs> In a dance with dragons. Never this podcast. But yeah, and the the way that everything is sort of out of reach for him, and then everything preceding this, and our reminders of the Blackwater as a uh, the sort of underworld thing going on. Uh, Davos's plight, you know, kind of reminds me of Tantalus in the river. Oh. Tantalus's punishment, you know, he was in the river, and then like. Above him was like a tree with fruit, and every time he was, hu- he would just like be hungry and thirsty all the time for obvious reasons, and he would try to jump up and get a fruit, and then the fruit, like a wind, would blow the branch just out of his reach, and then if he's like, I'm thirsty and I want to take a drink, then the water would suddenly like all recede. So, makes me think of Davos here right now. The days were only bad when the sun was shining, but the nights are beginning to get colder and colder, which now Davos has not only, he's not only thirsting and starving and prone to exposure, 
he now has developed a cough and a fever. I mean, probably some of it is infection. Who Uh-oh. knows? I don't know. Um, and there's rotten wet driftwood that would come to shore. And he's like, I would try to light it to warm myself, warm myself, but he can't because it's wet. And then to no avail, he just gets blisters. Thirst, hunger, and exposure are his only friends in the black water, and all he can hope is that for one of these to take pity on him soon enough and end his misery. He's like, or maybe I'll just do it myself, walk into the water. He's like, he'd always been a sailor and he was meant to die at sea. Yes, he thinks, the gods beneath the waters have been waiting for me, he told himself. It's past time I went to them. Uh, There is a little bit of Sansa (laughs) in this in my head coming out when you think of the him wanting to just walk into the water and to end it all and just be done. It reminds me of Sansa in her depression in King's Landing in A Clash of Kings a little bit. I was also thinking of um, not just Marillion, but anyone in the sky saws in the blue calling to them. Mm, Yeah, that's a good thought too. And interestingly enough, you know, the Tyrion chapter that comes right before this, you know what it opens with? No. Rusty hinges, iron hinges. Oh, oh. Yes, so that made me think of some of the stuff you were saying with Aaron earlier. I was kind of surprised. I was like, oh, that's so weird. But I digress. Something kind of silly that I I want to lighten the mood from the rusty hinges. This chapter kind of reminds me of Castaway, the movie. I've actually never seen it. The Tom Hanks movie. You've never seen it. Let me tell you. We have to watch this sometime, Eliana. Okay, now. We can this do that. Is, we should oh do it God, as a yes. watch, as like a watch. Discord watch. Yeah. This is a Girls Gone Canon Discord watch. I am in. We were also talking uh, about doing iClaudius sometime, but I don't know where to find that. But yeah. I know. We have to figure out how to do it all. We'll get there. We'll we'll figure out the tech. We have a great tech team on Discord, <laughs> which Allie is all of the people on our Discord. Oh. It's Ali and Jake. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Long story short, you get the drift of Castaway. Oh, uh, the drift. I, the drift oh my god i have a very strong memory of me i want to say i I was eight probably when i saw the movie and i have this strong memory of crying oh because no no big spoilers but he loses his friend wilson he comes up with the inanimate yes wilson uh and you gotta understand like if you didn't see this movie tom hanks castaway came out in 2000 and it was big like it was blockbuster was still around at the time you know they were a thing and i remember they had for sale or maybe they were giving it away maybe it was in a burger king meal i don't fucking remember but it was a wilson was a volleyball that he like had a bloody handprint on and he it became his friend basically his partner on the island in this movie where he was stranded on an island he's a fedex worker and his plane crashes and he gets stranded on this island and yeah and etc right you can see the antics that go from there so everyone should see it but i remember this visceral memory he loses wilson at one point and i bawled like i straight up sobbed like this is your your point where you're like wow my eight-year-old child is an empath everyone because i cried for this fucking volleyball but i digress like burger king had these toy antenna toppers for your car that were wilson yeah like it was a cultural phenomenon but Tom Hanks made this, and <laughs> legitimately, Davos is just waiting for this coconut friend, Wilson, to show up on his island and name him Stannis. He's like a step away. And Tom Hanks said when he was making Castaway that he wanted to examine the concept of four years of hopelessness in which you have none of the requirements for living. 
food, water, shelter, fire, and company. That's five requirements, but whatever. Um, I'm guessing food and water, he's calling one. And he had been reading an article about FedEx, and he heard that, you know, they had 747s just filled with packages flying across the Pacific. And he's like, whatever happens if they go down? But no, we don't stay long enough for Davos to get a Wilson necessarily to talk to uh, or lay his craziness at, though it does manifest later on when he talks to the mother in the ocean. And all jokes aside, there are some similar themes here, right? Like the baptism theme. Uh, Tom Hanks as this man who's a FedEx plane driver guy crashing. I mean, I'm not going to say anything, but it's about capitalism, everyone, and the grind. You know, he ends up like making this whole new life. If And no, it's not perfect or great, but uh, Davos has crash landed here and it is a baptism. Like Aliana said, he he kind of has a, a change of thought because he's had his whole life just crash here. And Davos's baptism eventually leads him to being accepted into Stannis's church. But it's not necessarily a normal church, right? Like just it's like not. Stannis isn't a normal god. It accepts him into Stannis and the other lords' skull and bones society, right? You're one of them, Davos. And Davos, after all this suffering, is reborn on this rock. Later on, he gets transformed into a lord. Mm. This is a pretty interesting transformation. That's a good point, yeah. And he, he does rise higher. Mm -hmm. As you said, this is preceding the hand job. Uh, is Tom Only Hanks death can pay for life, right? Yeah. Is Tom Hanks on the island for four years? I think that's the concept, or like yes. in, not not that he actually is, but in this story. Yeah, I'm sorry. Now I'm like intrigued, but it seems like a really emotional movie. You know what? The most emotional part is literally when he, you know, projects all of everything, all of this like loss he's experienced, and now he's on the island, and he's just like, you know, we're we're not made for that. We're unfortunately we've evolved, and we're made for like the couch and alcohol. And like Netflix now, we're not made for the stuff of legends, but he, you know, embraces nature and all that shit or whatever. And so when he loses that companion he's made, that's an inanimate fucking object. Eight year old me never understood loss and suffering until then. You know, like my heart broke for that fucking old man on the screen that I knew nothing about that. I was just like, why is his volleyball friend gone? This is horrible. Wow. Yeah. So I really recommend it, is what I'm trying okay. to tell you. <laughs> um, so now Davos amidst his own survival and agonizing, his own castaway moment. Again, a sail has emerged on the horizon. There's hope. And it's also a ship where no ship should be. Because it's sailing towards his little island, which is quote-unquote island. One of the many little sea monts from the floor of the Blackwater Bay. And the tallest of these juts 100 feet above the tide and the lesser ones stayed about, you know, 30 to 60 feet high. These are pretty fucking tall when I think about them. And sailors call them the Spears of the Merlin King, which, you know, of course, mm. Varys made these He as the Merlin King. <laughs> the tinfoil. Yes. Tinfoil. But uh, Davos thinks it, I mean, it's a difficult place. It's treacherous to sail in. So he thinks that any captain with sense kept his course well away from them. I like the subtle hints that George is dropping, and we're going to keep seeing more of them as we go of who this boat is, right? Uh, from the start, he says it's a striped hole. Here, he's like, ah, anyone with sense would keep well away from these things, because it's like an obstacle course for ships, 
uh, think of like a dog training obstacle course. That's what you're putting these ships through, but in the water and giant size. So and higher stakes. I find that interesting. <laughs> yeah, higher stakes. I guess. <laughs> Davos is listening to the wind to confirm that the ship is coming this way, unless she changes course soon. And we get this internal monologue from Davos. It might mean life, if he wanted it. He was not sure he did. Why should I live? He thought as tears blurred his vision. Gods be good, why? My sons are dead. Dale and Allard, Merrick and Matos, perhaps Devon as well. How can a father outlive so many strong young sons? How would I go on? I'm a hollow shell. The crabs died. There's nothing left inside. Don't they know that? Uh, sad. I like how he thinks of himself as a crab. Very sad. I, I'm ju- that's just, I'm just internalizing this. Perhaps Davos is a cancer. Oh, because they're all crabs? Yeah, they're crabs. <sighs> you know, I haven't thought about that. We, sh- we should actually seriously think about that sometime about yeah. Davos's star chart. Which reminds me, we need to report out at some point. A couple of you sent in your uh, Aswath character star charts, that, and they were great. We'll share them sometime. We're going to talk about it. We are. We are. Maybe it's an episode. We don't mm. know. We're not sure. But this is very sad. Reminds me a lot, actually, of Catelyn, right? All our babes, Ned. Yes. It's not quite the, the devotional song yet. We're getting there. We'll talk about it. But there's also something else, uh, a phrase in Latin this reminds me of, and it's actually probably most popularized by Angelina Jolie. She had it as a tattoo, and it was a testament to her struggle with eating disorders and drug addiction. And it actually makes me think a lot of Davos in this moment. And the phrase is, quad me, nu treat me, distreet. What nourishes me also destroys me. So take it in the different context for Davos. Davos can't even properly grieve for the sons he's lost without recontextualizing it in the world and what this means for him and his family. And if he chooses to live, to seek whoever is on this ship to save him, his path is probably going to lead back to Stannis because what nourishes him also destroys him. Mm. He has a home in Stannis's lands now. His wife has servants paid for because of Stannis. His two sons... The two that are left, ironically, Davos and Stannis, are the sons that are left, uh, are at home. Like, he still has to provide for them. And it's it, it, it's very sad. It's a never-ending trap. Yeah, it, it is. And I think that's something that we see with a lot of the other characters in this story, too. So I think that's a really interesting line. Mm-hmm. Davos and Black Betha had been in the second line of battle between Dale's Wraith and Allard uh, was on the Lady Maria. Merrick was Ormaster on Fury in the center of the first line. And then Mathos had served as Davos's second. As you'll all remember, he's on the same ship and told his dad to put on a helm. <laughs> we get to relive some moments with these quotes of for just a moment, the river rung to bowstrings and ships, but then a beast let out a roar and green flames erupted. The jade demon, pyromancer's piss, all around them. And Davos found himself in the water, watching the ships explode around him. And then if that's not enough, the Lannisters had also raised their giant iron chain to do further damage. Yay. From bank to bank, there was nothing but burning ships and wildfire. The sight of it seemed to stop his heart for a moment, and he could still remember the sound of it. 
the crackle of flames, the hiss of steam, the shrieks of dying men, and the beat of that terrible heat against his face as the current swept him down toward hell. Yeah, so a side note here. Some of uh, what I thought was interesting here is the way that the Blackwaters describe that language. It's not just consistent with A Clash of Kings Davos 3 in the language there, but it also makes me think, you know, we know that George writes a lot of the POV chapters back to back, right? Um, and then he'll go back and like edit them to make them all fit together. It feels very much like he wrote this right after writing the Blackwater scene, so mm-hmm. that's all. Just fun asides. He knew where he was going, for sure. Yeah. And and I think it's a really well-written chapter in general, right? Like, had Davos waited a few moments more, he would have joined his sons down at the bottom of the Blackwater, but instead Davos had kicked, sucking in for air, diving, hoping to pass under the chain and ships and wildfires, swimming for the bay, and he passes the men who were dragged down to the bottom uh, by their heavy plate. And he pushes his lungs as far as they can go, and then as he looks up... He spins too far, then suddenly he's unable to tell uh, top from bottom. He's too far gone at the bottom of the river, and he's kicking up mud and blinds himself. And next thing, he starts to scream because obviously you can only like (laughs) swim for so long. Um, And then water rushes in, and he knows he's drowning. And the next thing he knows, he wakes up on this strand of naked stone. And it's just uh, honestly all... I really love the way that the scene is written in this whole chapter and how it just focuses in on Davos as a character. But also, I think... In some ways, it gives us insight, right, into how this idea of the broken man in the story, though Davos doesn't become one, and I think that's a big part of his story, that he doesn't. No, that's a great point, especially because like, we just have this story of Sandor Clegane deserting, mm. uh, and we see him go to Sansa's bedchambers, and yes, it's inappropriate. We've discussed this at length in our first 300 hours of the Black on Water. the Blackwater. Yep. Yes, you get me. Uh, we don't have to go back to it. I'm sorry for bringing it up. Everyone knows that I'm problematic. Is what it is. Will I ever change? Will I stop being me? Will I stop being a dumb bitch? I don't know. I don't know. It's been like 28 years. Maybe we'll find out eventually. Stick around. Keep listening. But... Back to the story, Sandor becomes a very broken man here, right? And we're seeing the actual physical tumult on Davos's side of, like, everything he went through from drowning, from this rebirth, this baptism, like we've said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all all he's been working towards and climbing for and all that security for his family, for his sons, is just blown away in a moment, like the chain falling, like the fire mm-hmm. going off. And he's landed on this goddamn rock where he has nothing and he starts to think, how could they might call this rock Onion Rock? I hope so. It's my tombstone, my legacy. I'm going to call it Onion Rock. It's a great uh, name. He thinks, this is it. This is what my tombstone and my legacy will be. This is what we've succumbed to. This is it. Garbage. I'm an onion garbage. Yeah, he's starting to think, getting real down on himself, probably for obvious reasons. And... <laughs> On this onion rock, right, he's taking shelter on this, like, cave, this small cave that he's like, this is hardly even a cave, but he's like, it kind of is. And I I feel like caves and caverns in Davos' story are kind of an interesting motif that keeps popping up, right? Mm-hmm. In some ways, like, as we just saw, it was a source of sin for him, but now it's become his shelter and all the different layers it, it kind of encompasses. Yeah. Well, I do not envy this whole drowning experience he had and the mud and the murk and the 
the dead nope. bodies, dead things in the water, shall I say. Oh. We get this really beautiful, sad passage. This uh, this is very much, this whole bit is just like a confessional from Davos, right? And uh, Usher has confessions, so does Davos. The father protects his children, the Septons taught, but Davos had led his boys into the fire. Dale would never give his wife the child they had prayed for, and Allard with his girl in Old Town and his girl in King's Landing and his girl in Bravos. Oh, okay, Allard. Mm -hmm. They would all be weeping soon. Matos would never captain his own ship as he dreamed. Merrick would never have his knighthood. How can I live when they are dead? So many brave knights and mighty lords have died better than men than me and highborn. Crawl inside your cave, Davos. Crawl inside and shrink up small and the ship will go away and no one will trouble you ever again. Sleep on your stone pillow and let the gulls peck out your eyes while the crabs feast on your flesh. You've feasted on enough of them. You owe them. Hide, smuggler. Hide and be quiet and die. Damn. Sad. It's really sad. It hits hard, and I think it gives insight into something that this story explores, um, and especially in this book, of parents learning to live when their children die. It's it's um, a f insight into that idea that no parent should have to bury their child. Um, and we see that, of course, with Catelyn, and a very, very different, interesting exploration of that when she becomes uh, re- brought back as a zombie and of course Cersei and how we only get her POV later on um, after the death of her her firstborn that she really seemed to love but um, not necessarily in the most healthy way and I think it's something that George is just interested in in general right we're gonna see it happen with Doran Martell and I think it's a big something that George got to really dig into when he wrote Alisand and Jahari. So this is something that I think mm -hmm. interests him, and uh, Davos is giving some of that grief here. Dead kids as a motivator? Wow. You think that's a theme that George is exploring in this? Never. Absolutely not. <laughs> the sail of the ship that's been on the horizon for so, so long looms closer, and Davos is like, I hope it goes by quickly so I can die in peace. <laughs> Oh, Davos. <laughs> he reaches for his finger bones, his trusty finger bones at his neck, but the pouch is gone and his finger bones are gone with them. Yes. And we have a line here of Stannis could never understand why he'd kept the bones. To remind me of my king's justice, he whispered through cracked lips. But now they were gone. The fire took my luck as well as my son's. In his dreams, the river was still aflame, and demons danced upon the waters with fiery whips in their hands, while men blackened and burned beneath the lash. Mother, have mercy, Davos prayed. Save me, gentle mother, save us all. My luck is gone, and my sons. And I know that the finger bones have significance, but I'm just saying maybe Davos is a hoarder in the same way that I have kept my wisdom teeth, and I don't think it's any weirder than Illyrio keeping his wife's hands. Yeah, it kind of feels also like baggage. Mm, interesting. That he won't let go of it because letting go of those finger bones is letting go of his belief in his god. 
Yeah, and and he's being forced to try and reckon with that, of course, here, and doesn't quite get there. Right now, he, yes, he's weeping freely, and he says, "The fire took it all. The fire." Mm-mm. I don't know. There's the water there too. Just saying. Anyways, perhaps it's merely the sea's sounds, but Davos almost hears the sea return his call, saying, "You called the fire. You burned us. Us." And Davos cries back that it was her, Melisandre, begging the mother not to forsake them. Okay, I just, I have a couple thoughts, but first, I'm gonna break them out here, one by one. First thought, begging the mother not to forsake them. Who's them, bitch? Everyone's dead except you and Stannis. Like, who the fuck is them, first of all? Maybe it's Davos first and Wilson. First of all. Second of all, she wasn't even there. Shut the fuck up. Like Davos, I know you're you're yeah. kind of traumatized right now. Okay, I'm gonna give you a real, I'm a real one. I'm just gonna give you a pass. But hmm, all right, back to the serious stuff. I just wanted to play pretend and laugh for a second, but really, bitch, they're all dead. I find his prayers to the mother here super interesting because Davos hasn't been allowed to pray audibly to his gods in a while, right? He's been stuck in Stannis' camp. He can't be a non-believer. And in this moment, he's utterly alone uh, on day who knows how many, stranded, right? No one to talk to. And his choice is interesting. He doesn't pretend to talk to Stannis. He probably fears Stannis' wrath and his failure, right? He fears his failure and Stannis' reaction. He doesn't pretend to talk to Maria, his wife, the mother that he actually knows, if you remember Stannis in A Clash of Kings, says to him, Why do you pray to the mother? She didn't birth your kids. Pray to your wife. That's who birthed your kids, Davos. And here, he's not praying to Maria. He's done nothing but let her down. How could he? How could he face Maria right now? He talks to the mother instead. He talks to the mother, the same mother Sansa just prayed to for mercy for these broken soldiers just a few chapters ago. And... He's basically playing out a conversation that he knows he can't have with Maria, right? Because even if Davos did play this conversation out and have it with Maria, he right now is expecting rage and anger and guilt from her, right? And pain and processing of emotions that one would probably have when your husband causes the death of, oh, I don't know, what's five divided by seven? What percentage is that, Eliana? Is that uh, well, a lot of your kids? It's four. Four. Right. right, but to his knowledge, it's yeah. That he thinks it might be five. five. Um, I don't. Five. So I'm not going to um, do this math. <laughs> I mean, I'll just. I don't know math. I'm going to be honest. It's like seventy percent ish, something around there. 70, but seventy-one. Yeah. Seventy-one percent. Okay, we're rounding yeah. down. Yeah, I just. But yeah, so you've lost seventy-one percent of your kids, basically, in your mind right now. Uh, so playing this conversation out with your wife would not go well if you're like play acting a conversation out and trying to talk to someone in your grief of five days being stranded on this island in pain so the sad part of that is that even though he fears mario's reaction mario couldn't even have a natural reaction right uh she'd react in grief but at the same time women in westeros when they lose their children aren't allowed to have that reaction as we learn from catalan's reaction being pretty kind of uh dramatic to seeing rob her oldest that she loves very much killed in front of her yeah that's the problem uh but she she, maria doesn't get that like maria's not highborn 
her role in Westeros is to serve her husband and make sure the homestead is good and take care of the kids. And so she doesn't even have the agency to react in full grief. The fit that we see Cersei or Catelyn throw, like, Mario wouldn't even be allowed to do that because she is responsible for raising Davos and Stannis, the two remaining children at home. So she doesn't even get to fully grieve herself. She has children to feed. She can't react or hate Stannis or act out. Yeah, she has no time or energy yet. She has no agency in the situation. So Davos is here on this island yelling at the mother because he knows deep down that she has no agency, so he can't even have a guilt conversation with her. Yeah, and I mean, he's far away, right? He's like, what could Maria, what could even say to Maria? Yeah, nothing. And, you know, in in terms of the conversation that he has, right, in all of his grief, a lot of Davos' situation here reminds me of the Book of Job. Mm. There's this idea of divine justice, uh, where, you know, obviously, you do something wrong, you sin, and God punishes you, but Job was pretty blameless, God was just like, I don't know, posturing for Satan. (laughs) Um, That's literally what happened. And... (laughs) (laughs) it is (laughs) and he's like what did i do and we all know because we we saw the beginning of it right uh we all read that but anyway so davos searches you know he's searching for his finger bones and i this reminds me of that because he's thinking of how the finger bones uh, were meant to remind him of stannis's justice and as we'll recall davos had thought of stannis as his god and you know you kind of have to question in all this like has Davos done wrong or like has he done anything that has he done any sort of sin that warrants being punished the way he is now and I think I know that that's an ongoing question in this story right we explored it with Theon um but here with Davos that's something that he's sort of wondering he has these hallucinations of course with the seven his gods and they assert to Davos that he has in fact sinned in burning their effigies and also in aiding Melisandre in the murder of Courtney Penrose and in standing by at the death of Maester Crescent but again does that warrant the sort of punishment that Davos endures here is it even punishment we'll come back to that and you know it, it, it's the same as the question of did Davos's smuggling warrant the punishment of his fingers being cut off? And so divine justice is being called into question. And there's a also, it's a chapter with many different gods at play. Again, a chapter about faith and the way that the Forsaken is as well. We have the Seven. We have, of course, the Red God and the, his prophet Melisandre. And then we have all the ones Davos thinks of when he's like, maybe I should just die. And he's thinks, like, the gods beneath the waters have been waiting for me, so there's those gods too, right? And then, of course, there's Stannis. But interestingly, Davos, at no point, like, do Davos's gods accuse Davos of idolatry. They accuse him for his actions, but they don't accuse him of choosing to follow Stannis as a sort of god. And also, interestingly, not once does Davos ever really question or blame Stannis for how the battle went. You know, uh, Chloe, as you said earlier, he blames Melisandre for everything that went here, like in terms of like the fire and also for causing him to sin when he's at Storm's End. But he doesn't put blame on Stannis for giving the order. And I think we mentioned this during that chapter, but there's an aspect of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his child. But I think that's going to be more uh, more at the forefront of Stannis' own storyline versus Davos's. But 
Regardless, Davos externalizes that blame at first onto Melisandre entirely, then internalizes it on himself instead and blames himself. And I do kind of question, again, like how much blame does Davos deserve? And if he's being unfair on himself by internalizing that guilt and blame as a way to feel more control over the situation, um, especially because he's trapped on a deserted island, uh, sort of purgatory where he has no control over everything. But also, Mm -hmm. as you said, like, in terms of who he would speak with in this moment, Maria would likely feel grief. Yeah. So on one hand, like, I think that there's a, an aspect of Davos's guilt and, like, Davos's uh, culpability and, like, he could have pulled out of the plans, right? Or said no. But at the same time, like, his sons were all, like, a lot of them were adult, like, right? And from the way that we see them act, and especially the way that we see Devin act later on, I think it's likely that Davos's sons were going to, like, go along with this plan anyway, right? Like, they were men of fighting mm-hmm. age, and regardless, that means that if their king goes to war, like, they know how to sail. They were going to be roped into this regardless. And, yeah, like, Davos thinks of his luck also as being gone, and in a way, a lot of it was luck. How could any of them know Tyrion's plan, right? It was bad luck. And to give yourself up to, I don't know, like, that, especially in grief, it's difficult to just resign yourself and be like, that's just life, or death, whatever. That's just how the chips fell. And again, like, it's weird, the lack of blame laid at Stannis' feet, where Davos mm-hmm. has put his king on a pedestal beyond reproach here, and as we see in the next chapter, he does, and, and here, right, we see he shifts that blame back onto Melisandre, but... There's a kind of need for him to have that as his personal narrative, give himself something to do. And I'm just like, it's strange because it, and I get it, but also at the same time, like Stannis is the one who chose not to bring Melisandre here. And it's Stannis who put the wrong people in charge and who made the wrong Mm -hmm. calls for this battle. And it just really, really highlights how even in this chapter, that faith that Davos has in his king, that he never once truly questions him. And yeah. I think that it's a very apt depiction putting Davos akin to Job. And I know we're going to talk more about the book of Job later on, but the trials of Job, like Job retains his faith in God despite these tragic events, right? Despite a series of tragic events. He loses all his kids. Absolutely. And it's very akin to that. And it reminds me kind of of many other divine tests, right? Like this is a divine test Mm. Yes. for Davos. He's lost everything. And it feels a lot like this story uh, called The Cottage of Candles, which is about basically filling a biblical injunction, the injunction, justice, justice, shall you pursue. And The Cottage of Candles starts off with a man who, he is Jewish, goes out in the world to seek justice, and he thinks true justice exists somewhere, but he can never find it, and he goes everywhere searching for it. Years pass. He explores all the known world except for one last great place. He enters the dark forest with a lot of hesitation. He's kind of freaked out, uh, and he runs into a cave of thieves, and they mock him, and they're like, do you think you'll find justice here? And then he goes into the huts of witches, and they're like, you're going to expect to find justice here? We're witches! And the man goes deeper and deeper into the forest, and he arrives at a clay hut, and he sees many flickering flames in the hut, and he's curious, and he knocks. Nothing. Curious. Knocks again. Nothing. He steps inside it. The door opens. He pushes it open, and he realizes that it's much larger inside than outside. It's filled with hundreds of shelves and dozens of oil candles. 
Some of the candles are in precious holders, some in cheap holders, and some are filled with oil burning brightly, and some are almost gone, and an old man all at once appears, and he says, how can I help you? And the man says, I've gone everywhere searching for this justice. Tell me, what are these candles? And he says, each of the candles is a person's soul. As the candle continues to burn, the person remains alive. When the candle burns out, the person's soul takes leave. The man says, can you show me my soul? So the old man takes him through the labyrinth, and the man now sees everything. It's endless, and he gets there, and he points to a candle in a holder of clay, and he goes, that's your soul. And the man looks at his candle, and he becomes horribly afraid because the wick of his candle is very, very short. And it looks like at any moment it could slide out, sputter out, be over, and he sputters. And he's like, how could how could I be so close to death? And then he points at the candle next to his that's burning brightly and new. And he's like, well, whose is that? And the guy's like, I can only reveal each man's candle to him alone. And so the man's quaking, and he sees smoke rising elsewhere, and he's like, wow, does that mean I'm no longer among the living? And he looks back, and he sees he only has a few drops left, and he gets this terrible idea when he looks at the full one, and he takes the candle, lifts it up to his own, and he tries to pour it into his own candle, and the man grabs him, and he's like, is this the kind of justice you're seeking? And for that, what it hurts so much it's supposed to be death, basically. Like, he dies. That's the old man kills him or whatever. Yeah. And he opens his eyes and he sees that everything is gone and he's standing alone. And all he hears are the trees whispering his fate. And then he wonders, have my candle burned out? Am I dead? And it's supposed to be the supernatural folk aspect with the keeper of the soul candles, an Elijah-type figure, right? Uh, basically deciding, is this the angel of death come to take me? Or is my life still going? And Davos's luck feels like it's out here, right? Like he's ready to give up. He's not doing yeah. great. He's ready to die. And even in that last moment, his faith in what's happening, what is he going to choose? Well, this is where he's about to choose. As we see, he chooses his faith and he chooses to press on. Yeah. And I mean, he chooses his luck mm -hmm. here, right? Because, I mean, that there's a ship here at all. That is pretty lucky. It's a sign from a god. Yeah, somewhere. Uh, the Mother's Mercy, maybe, as we'll talk about later. Yeah, and I think it's really important here that this ship that's coming, as we know, is actually not... It's not Stannis saving him, right? That's the biggest part of all of this. As we're about to find out, it's right. one of the Lysini ships... And it's one of Salador's men. So it's actually Davos's own connection that saves him. He's not cheating. He's not pouring the oil from someone else's hmm. candle into his own candle holder for once. He's not smuggling in onions and, you know, making money off of them and paying with his fingers. This is Davos doing it on his own for once. So it's really interesting that he is avoiding it and avoiding blaming Stannis at all in this. Yeah. And this because, like you said, he he's the one who fostered that connection with the Lysini. He's kind of made his own luck here. Yeah, like the way his sons talk to him, like, Dad, you're a knight. You can't just let these guys speak to you like that now. And he's like, no, you don't get it. All we have is because of Stannis. It's the same thing here, right? Like, this isn't, Stannis isn't out here saving your ass. Like, you get home, you don't, you call an Uber and get yourself there. Stannis didn't come to give you a ride home, Davos. Yeah, he's, I mean, he had a job even before meeting up with Stannis, right? Just like your Sims family that um, <laughs> they were in the mafia. <laughs> I remember that. 
<laughs> I remember that. He was like that. Um, no, Typhon? Yeah, he was a good sim. Yeah. <laughs> Rip. Gone too soon. Well, Davos thinks about a different person, not Tython. He thinks about Melisandra and her long coppery hair, her red eyes, her red gowns, swirls of silk and satin, and flame from the east that came to win them to her alien god. And then he proclaims that it was all her work to the mother. But even as he says it, he kind of knows that it's his own work as well. And we have this we have this passage. Her work and yours, Onion Knight. You rode her into Storm's End in the black of night, so she Mm -hmm. might loose her shadow child. You are not guiltless, no. You rode beneath her banner and flew it from your mast. You watched the seven burn at Dragonstone and did nothing. She gave the father's justice to the fire, and the mother's mercy, and the wisdom of the crone, smith, and stranger, maid, and warrior. She burnt them all to the glory of her cruel god, and you stood and held your tongue. Even when she killed old Maester Crescent, even then, you did nothing. Man, rough stuff. Yeah. Rough stuff. A lot of self-reckoning going on, Davos. Here he is. He's broken down the Blackwater. He's praying for his death and for mercy. And and before we uh, get into this big guilt fest, someone else that I think we see a lot of this self-loathing from is Tyrion, who had the chapter Mm -hmm. before this, right? In the last chapter, interestingly enough, Davos is requesting judgment from the mother and facing the mother, but Tyrion is actually facing judgment from the father, specifically his own father. Davos 1 comes sandwiched between the winners of the Blackwater, Tyrion and Sansa, which, let's face it, neither of them are winning shit right now, right? Especially Sansa. Tyrion is lying in recovery, and he's bitter, and he feels like this is a hollow and empty win. He actually has this line that sounds like something I think we might hear from Stamis someday, which is, My hirelings betray me, my friends are scourged and shamed, and I lie here rotting, Tyrion thought. I thought I won the bloody battle. Is this what triumph tastes like? This chapter also is laying that groundwork for the Lysini ships Davos sees, the striped hole being the hint that this is not all lost for Davos, right? In the Tyrion chapter, Tyrion says, Stannis's Lysini kept their galleys out in the bay beyond your chain. When the battle turned bad, they were put in along the bay shore and took off as many as they could. Men were killing each other to get aboard toward the end. Had Stannis won, this chapter might be a little more like Tyrion won, Davos forcing himself up from recovering from the battle, dealing with business around the castle, making war plans and coronation plans and marriage alliances even for Stannis's golden stag heiress, fortifying their keep and holding, but alas, for all the work that he's done, Tyrion's plea for a reward is silenced and met with fire from Tywin, which is where we see Davos's plot continue to differ. In this chapter, Davos's faithful, loyal, unfaltering service is eventually rewarded. Right now, it's not rewarded well. It's rewarded with exhaustion, dehydration, hunger, pain, the bad stuff. In fact, he's given his king everything, as we know. His children, his devotion, his relationship with his wife, the universe for King Stannis' reign. Stannis still will end up rewarding Davos, right? Specifically because he sees A, the path that Stannis originally took was wrong, and Davos's words had merit after all, and about time, and good move. Yes, I said good move, write it down in the books, one nice thing about Stannis, but in the face of winning, and after physically he loses part of his face, 
Tyrion gets rejected by Tywin. And it's because Tyrion cannot give Tywin the part of himself that Tywin craves, right? Tywin hates every fiber of Tyrion's existence, every cell. Tyrion can't fix that. We are past that, even in sacrificing part of his body in the Blackwater, which Davos sacrifices his body and his god does reward him. And it's interesting what you said earlier, and that's something kind of here, right? That the father judges and Davos mm-hmm. is asking what was judged and his the mother is judging him. As opposed to the father. Whereas here, I mean, as you said, Tyrion can't win with Tywin. Tywin's always going to judge him. And it the scales are tipped. Mm-hmm. And not in his favor. Mm-mm, not at all. The sail of the ship is now 100 yards away. It's moving quickly. And Davos begins to climb his rock, clinging to it. Uh, he almost falls twice. And he's like, if he falls, he's dead. And he had to live. Then he screams, SHIP! Into the wind. SHIP HERE! And he can see the ship, clearly now, lean, striped hull, a bronze figurehead, a billowing sail. He can't read its name because he's illiterate, but he screams again for help until one of the crewmen sees him. A crewman asks who he is, and Davos realizes he doesn't know what the right answer is. He's like, oh shit, dog? Locust? Uh, he thinks- Fuck. Classic. <laughs> Classic. Classic. Oh, fire was involved with that too, actually, in fact. Wow. You know, and people debate whether the POV is alive or not. Um, Mm. Got him. So Davos thinks to himself, a smuggler who rose above himself, a fool who loved his king and forgot his gods. Instead, though, what he says out loud is that he was a captain, a knight in the battle. I kind of love this line. I mean, I love a lot of the writing right. in this chapter, but right. the you know, this really highlights, you know, the difference between who people are, who they perceive themselves, and, the, of course, the narratives that come along with the titles. It's something that I think we saw really well in Jamie's POVs, of course, but it's kind of pointed here that he says that he was a captain and then that he was a knight in battle. You were saying earlier that Davos's sons were always reminding him about his knighthood and that Davos stumbles on it here, right? It, he has to remember that he's a knight. And you kind of see that lesson coming through now in how he's presenting himself. That last that last little lesson from his sons, like Math- Mathos being like, Dad, put on your hat. Mm. Mm. Sad times. It's really awful, so I'm really upset that you're talking about it. God. Uh, many gods, <sighs> maybe. because Only one realm, one god, one king. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, Isn't that what the people want? They want you to be pro Stannis. <laughs> Maddie's been really on that lately. <laughs> I know I've seen she's been doing a great job. Uh, yes. So back to these men, the men talking to Davos. They ask, "Okay, but which king were you a knight for?" And Davos is like, "IDK, IDK," and then he's like, "Wait a second, no, it's not one of Joffrey's fleet." It is the Lysine fleet. It's one of Salador Sans. It's striped. Yes. <sighs> yes, and so he thinks the mother sent her here. The mother in her mercy. She had a task for him. Stannis lives. Yeah, that's the first uh, fucking thing you should be thinking about Stannis right now, Davos. Lives. The first fucking thing. <laughs> Stannis lives, he knew then. I have a king still. <sighs> and sons. I have other sons. Oh my God. Yeah, he said this shit. And a wife, loyal and loving. He said this shit with his whole ass head. Whole ass head. 
How could he have forgotten? The mother was merciful indeed. Stannis, he shouted back at the Lysini. Gods be good, I serve King Stannis. Ay, said the man in the boat, and so do we. Holy shit. But, like, he was so close. Davos was so close to a breakthrough. And then, just like our friend Pete said last week, Davos the Gambler is back on the wagon. Davos said bet. Davos was like, Annie up, Stannis. Mm -mm." Really, he straight up with his whole ass head said, I have other sons and a wife so loyal and loving. Bitch, you just killed off four four of your sons. And the first thing you say is, Stannis lives. I have a king still. I that he didn't think before I should live for my other kids or his wife yeah this is some he's lying to himself he's got a problem Davos has a gambling problem he's straight up lying to himself here holy shit Eliana yeah Davos knows he has a problem I don't think so and he he eventually will when it's too late when the cloth is when the wool has been pulled from his eyes. But like that's the thing, right? His faith has him overlooking all of the yeah. all of Stannis's shit. Yeah, and he's just so intent on serving him for like that one act of mercy. And I'm like, was it that merciful? I don't know, or that justice, right? That he thought was so incredible to him, and. Coming back once more to the Book of Job, at the end here, right, um, again, we all know why Job suffered, even if they all don't, but one of the people that he's uh, dialoguing with uh, suggests this idea of, you know, we as people will never truly know God's plans and his divine wisdom. It is unknowable to us as humans and that there may be a purpose for this and that suffering may be a part of God's plan. And... Davos is swallowing that message up here, right? Not just seawater, swallowing this all up. And interestingly, he says, gods be good. I serve King Stannis when he answers the Lysini, not God. Because as we know, everyone in Stannis' camp loves to correct each other on their plural or singular god uh, while they're all circle jerking uh, during their starvation. But whatever. It makes sense that he also thanks the mother for her mercy here that he would say gods be good because he's been talking to her and he like please and mercy. maybe it's a compromise right like it feels almost like a compromise like this time will be different davos said uh- <laughs> i mean his kids are probably gonna survive i don't know about stannis's kids but yeah you know i mean the odds are a little different whichever way you spin it but It does remind me of the Earth's foundations in Judaism. There's a myth, basically, where Yahweh replies to Job and says, Where were you when I laid the Earth's foundations? Speak if you have understanding. Do you know who fixed its dimensions or who measured it with a line? Onto what were its bases sunk? Who set its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the divine beings shouted for joy? Uh, As we're about to see Davos transition from being, like, literally seaworthy right like Mm -hmm. out at sea and able to participate in the field to being lordly and see him take on that lordly moniker when stannis finally bestows that gift or that curse i guess we should say onto him and makes him his best man gives him that hand job wow um that change between the two is like this interesting change almost of classism right and understanding where 
What saves him is he sees the striped holes and realizes it's the Lysine ship. And he thinks, well, he couldn't read it at first, but then he realizes the normal signals that he usually would notice from ships in the bay and how he would figure out who they are and how fast they're going. And if it's a strong captain or if it's an interesting captain or, uh, you know, a captain that knows tricks and maneuvers, he notes it's that as we go reading. through this chapter. You know, ship shit. I mean, like, he, he notices ship stuff the whole chapter. You see him yeah. like very lightly in the background, notice it. So, like, he, that is reading for Davos. That's him reading the sea. That's him understanding yeah. and reading the sea. It's like the alethiometer in his dark materials, right? Uh, mm -hmm. to, to cross series for a second. But crossing worlds. he's not, yes, he's illiterate, but he's not stupid. Uh, and the next part of this journey in A Storm of Swords, Davos kind of has to cut through a lot of the red tape and the bullshit, right? And Yahweh says to Job, you can't possibly understand all of divinity. I created this, bro. Like, I made this magical shit. This world, this essence, this everything, you look around you, I made that shit, bro. And Job is just supposed to sit there and take it like, yeah, you're right. I don't know dick shit, God. That's great. I don't know shit. And I don't know. That's kind of how I feel here for Davos, you know? Like, he's about to enter a realm where he has to sit there frustratedly on and off which is what's so exciting about when he finally gets through to Stannis re-Night's Watch, but... And I mean, God does reward Job's faithfulness with, um, by restoring some of, like, his possessions and wealth, mm -hmm. etc., but obviously he doesn't bring... The kids uh, back. Yeah, that only happens a couple times, and it's really associated with one person throughout, um, you know, the Lazarus and Jesus. It only happens... Mm -hmm. Very few times. <laughs> yeah, those are some climaxes for the story. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. You can't just yeah. go putting those throughout. No peppering them out. Sorry, Job. Yeah, I mean, I know George likes to do it, but he does it a little different, right? And and when <laughs> so he he does regain some of that, right? And just as Davos, as you said, rises higher, returning back to Stannis. Mm hmm. <sighs> I mean, you just can't bring a kid back or a dad can't bring a man back even one without a head oh, can you bring a that's mom back that's one of the though? saddest saddest lines yeah but you can bring a mom back apparently well she uh, had her head already on well listen i'm just saying you can bring a mother back to bestow some mercy mm. upon the heathens of the story and mm. man this chapter reads straight up like catalan throughout clash throughout Storm, uh, even so much as in A Storm of Swords, we have Catelyn taking that role of the mother as her father dies, as Hoster dies. She has to deal with a lot of that grieving, has to deal with a lot of that kind of uh, coming to terms and closure that a lot of other people are busy with war and stuff and don't have to deal with that. They have other problems to deal with. We have this line from Catelyn's thoughts, she was no longer an innocent bride with a head full of dreams. She was a widow, a traitor, a grieving mother, and wise, wise in the ways of the world. This kind of reminds me of what Davos is about to be, right? Uh, a traitor. He's about to do some stuff against his king that maybe isn't great. A grieving father and wise, very wise. And later mm -hmm. on, we get Catelyn going to the Sept to pray in that chapter. Catelyn went to the sept and lit a candle to the father above for her own father's sake, a second to the crone who had let the first raven into the world when she peered through the door of death, and a third to the mother for Liza and all the children they had both lost. 
that that theme of losing a child is really what the series is what based on i guess when you really look down to it uh dead parents dead kids dead everyone death it's, it's a bummer the series is kind of bummer when you think about it uh but it's also about life right and there is a lot of life that is afforded davos survives and he goes on to save the life of edric eventually probably saved the life of rickon which we'll talk about as we go through the series and uh unfortunately maybe not save the life of shireen but you tried you got two out of three so yeah two out of three is good odds right for gambling right i don't know hey 70 percent of the kids are gone so save 70 percent other of them i don't know 71 percent five out of seven just kidding and it sucks because catlin thought that basically you know probably about 70 ish percent of her kids she thought they were dead yeah but turns out a hundred percent of them were alive, and then only a bit of them died. A bit. Um, just a bit. Depending on wolf theories, you know what I mean? You don't know. As far as Rob goes, maybe he's in his- maybe he warged, and then he- and then- and I don't- He could be in Walder Frey right now, for all we know. Rob is Roslyn. Whoa. And or he time-traveled- he time-traveled into Edmure and Roslyn's baby. I think we're getting a little on a tangent here, Eliana. But it's what I'm possible. trying to say is, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's all that you said, and I think it's interesting that you know, for you, you talk about it and tie it to Mother's Mercy, and she's given the mother right tied into all this. It's it's provided a second life for Davos and a second life for Catelyn. You know, the circumstances are a little different, but it feels very linked because again, all of this is happening in the same book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you really start to feel kind of that that Greek tragedy vibe around Stannis in this too. A lot mm-hmm. of what you've spoken about with Daenerys, or sorry, written about, has not spoken about. You must pay her ten million dollars to hear her thoughts out loud, audibly about this essay. I think I spoke I about to. it on. I think I spoke about it on, not a cast. Well, you can listen to that for free, or you can pay $10 million to hear Eliana talk about Daenerys. No, I'm just kidding. But there's a lot of just the idea of, like, Greek mythology with the rivers, as we've been discussing, or, like, with Merope, uh, with the guardian of the sea, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, being her even being a mother-type figure. You know, she's prominent in Ovid. There's just so much, like, it just feels very mystical. There's a lot of magic, even with all the dreariness and the murkiness and the green and the crab shells scattered everywhere and the gulls flying overhead. The chapter feels very, I don't know, very odyssey. It does. It really does. And coming back to Greek myths, you know, Aphrodite, she would bathe in the sea and her virginity would be restored. And maybe Davos is a virgin again. Hmm. That's that's how I could, what I got to, but uh, no, there is a definitely big Odyssey vibes here. But he makes it back home, but actually he doesn't. Yeah, Stannis, Stannis is his Calypso. That's interesting to think about. It's a thought. <laughs> I'd like to see it respectfully. If anyone would like to sketch it for science, interesting. <laughs> uh Stavos. Oh my god. Well, I guess that's it. That's a wrap on Davos 1 and Storm of Swords. It's a quick chapter. It's short but full of so much depression. Oh my god. Uh, 
it is death and shit man i hope it gets better for this guy i'm really rooting for him this job guy this job guy yeah i mean you know arrested development it's an interesting it's an interesting (laughs) show (sighs) i just love that he's called job in that Yes, so if you want to see what happens to Davos as he thinks a little more about his depression, which causes him to do potentially rash things in the next few chapters, <laughs> stay tuned. Follow us on social media at girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter, where you can also send us a tweet, or if you'd like, send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Hey, if you haven't already, make sure that you are subscribed to us on a streaming service of your choice. We are on a bunch of them like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Acast, Pandora, Amazon Music, Stitcher, you name it, we're there. And of course, you know, this month is very, very, very exciting for us here at Girls Gone Canon. As many of you may know, we are also doing another series his Dark Materials, and this month, His Dark Materials uh, has returned for Series 2 slash Season 2, depending on which side of the pond you live upon. And so we're going to be putting out episodes uh, about each episode weekly, and of course, at the end of this month, we do have our La Belle Sauvage episode, um, as we follow one of the books of Dust, which takes place in the His Dark Materials episode. So, big times, big times. Yeah, lots happening. Our patrons as well, if you're a patron over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, you can get a special episode every month. Every other month, it is a Song of Ice and Fire themed, and every other other month, it is His Dark Materials themed or Miscellaneous Story themed. But this month, it is an ASWAF episode, so we are going to be discussing a part of Fire and Blood and the World of Ice and Fire and a lot of other stuff going on, which is the Lyceny Spring. So it is just in time for these bits of info with Salador that are dropping in these chapters. We're going to talk in depth about the info we get about the Targs in the Lyceny Spring in Fire and Blood and a bunch of other stuff. So you can tune into that if you are in the Stranger tier and above at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon at the end of the month. And... Another thing that's exciting happening this month, as many of you know, we have a Discord, and that Discord is available for patrons, $10 and up, in the Thunder tier or above, and once a month, we have started doing like a brunch slash happy hour. We don't necessarily eat, we mostly just drink or talk, and this month, uh, we are going to be covering something about food in Westeros or A Song of Ice and Fire in general, because as you all know, George loves to describe food and we love to eat food and make food. It's important to us. So that's what this month's brunch slash happy hour is going to be about. And of course, we have slideshows um, and we are asking everyone to do a PowerPoint potluck and submit their own slides for the brunch slash happy hour for this month's Discord discussion. Yes, it's going to be very, very fun, and we get up to shenanigans. Otherwise, there's a lot of chatting. We have servers for anything you can imagine. There's movies and books and yada yada and His Dark Materials spoilers and A Song of Ice and Fire speculation and everything good. All the things that are good, especially food. We have one of our patrons who is wonderful. Their name is Courtney. They uh, they post a huge haul of produce yes they have amazing produce if you want to look at beautiful gourds join our discord 
Again, it- patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Can't wait to see you there. Thanks so much for listening to us, everyone, and we hope you have a wonderful week. Happy autumn. I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Talk soon. Goodbye.